Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by the IT consulting firm of William Lumberg and Associates. Founded in 1999, we are the region's preeminent testing procedure specification reporting experts. Just go ahead and give us a call. That would be great. Welcome back to the Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGpod, and this information is coagulated on our webpage, www.lgg.com. Podcast.com. Also, a shout out to our newest listeners at Burlingame. Is that it, Kirk? Burlingame, yeah, Burlingame Intermediate School. Burlingame Intermediate School. We see you, San Fran, and <laughs> welcome. Today's topic, Kirk, what are we talking about? Talking about open source software. Open source software. This episode will probably be a little tech heavy, but we're going to try to make it understandable and accessible to listeners who aren't well-versed in technology or perhaps even unthinkably find it boring. (laughs) If if you find technology boring, why on earth are you listening to this podcast? Yeah, you may have the wrong podcast. So (laughs) this is probably going to be a Ben-centric episode because I am a former open source developer uh, and I've dug into these issues a little more deeply. But um, as always, Kirk is here for uh, for at least color commentary. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about... We we unfortunately seem to have the giggles this episode, so just be forewarned. Oh, I'm stuffed up, so I'm using... using, This is an inside baseball trick. I'm using uh, laughter as an excuse to to sniff without being caught. Um, Okay, so let's talk about what open source is and why it matters. And to understand that, we have to establish a couple of basic things about, you know, computer software and how it works. And I assume, if you're listening to this, you understand... What a computer is? What a computer is and that it has software on it because you should be using software to listen to this podcast. <laughs> of some form, of some yes. Form. Now, what you're using is a computer, maybe another question entirely. You know, it's yeah. a mobile device. Is that an actual sort of desktop computer? But It's important to understand, I think, that so- software is a lot of things now, and a lot of things are software now, uh, even more so than even five or ten years ago. It's it really broadened up. And you know, the smartphone market has put computers literally in our pockets, and everything on there is also software. And you know, the differences between, you know, it used to be, Kirk, I'm sure you remember this, it used to be that like pocket devices were little niche things with yeah. unique operating, you know, mobile operating systems that weren't really all that full featured. And a lot of it originally, I mean, the the implementations of a lot of specialty devices was hardware. I mean, you know, you talk about like old video game systems. I mean, yeah. those were hardware; those were not software driven. Um, and you know, we've moved more, we've moved more and more away from I think devices which implement anything in specific hardware to now the general purpose devices that run it in software. I remember there's a, there's a famous quote by. Uh, some venture capitalist, I don't know who it is, which is, what is it, software is eating the world or yeah, something along those lines. it is. <laughs> um, and I think that's a very accurate statement of, you know, what we're seeing. And the reason I think it's so interesting is what we're seeing is we're seeing a movement away from the idea of a single purpose device. So the idea of a mechanical device, which is, hey, it's it's built to do this, to being a general purpose device, which is programmed to do this. Yeah. And it may be programmed to only do a few simple things, um, but the answer to it is it's hard hardware could physically do much more. We just don't want it to do that. Yeah, I think the iPhone was probably the first, maybe the BlackBerry, but the first sort of wide-release, commercially available, you know, pocket computer that really was a pocket computer. We had pocket computers back 
back in yeah. the 80s. A friend of mine had one. But I, all, all it really was was a basic interpreter. It didn't do yeah. much more than that. I had, I had a handspring. And uh, for those of yeah. you who may remember those things, I mean, that's the sort of competitor to Palm. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, Palm OS was another one. But they were all sort of stripped down, you know, not really general purpose computers. They were designed to do one thing, kind of the way an iPod was. You know, yeah. it had an, a, you know, uh, some sort of operating and file system in it, but it was really just designed to do the one thing. Now with the iPhone, you have a general purpose computing device in your pocket that can do whatever you want yeah. it to do. Just as an interesting anecdote, I think it's worth pointing out, you know, we, we love to throw on the screen general purpose computing device. It's a term that actually, because we both work in patent yeah, law, we're patent. both sort of familiar with. Um, it's actually a term that's used a lot in conjunction with patent law of general purpose computing device for determining patentable subject matter. Um, so it's one of those things where, you know, we're talking about this and the idea behind it. It's not the subject of this episode, but it's worth pointing out that that's actually a legal term. Yeah, we ought, we ought, to, we ought to consider doing an episode on that at some point because the whole the, the whole concept of what is a general purpose computing device is fraught with uh, <laughs> misunderstanding <laughs> and problems. So, but that's uh, we'll, we'll, we'll file that in our whole other episode file uh, to understand open source. I have to understand what software is made of. And if you're not a developer, if you are, this will all be uh, sort of uh, secondary to you. Yeah. But if you're not, you know, when, we, as, as, a, as a person who uses software, what you're accustomed to seeing is really what we call the, the bit code or the machine code or an executable code. It's not really code in the, in the same sense of like source code. It's a, it's a set of binary instructions that are given to your computer's processor to tell it to do stuff. Yep. And your processor knows how to do this stuff it tells it to do and it's really boring stuff like move this bit <laughs> from this register to this register or this byte or or add these two numbers together it's really really low level stuff and I'm for those of you who are computer people I know right now you're rolling your eyes and screaming at your stereo and saying that's not exactly right I know I know we're simplifying <laughs> um, so the machine code is not really human readable it's it's based on the, uh, the instructions that your particular processor knows how to interpret we also have something called object code which is kind of like machine code I won't get into the differences uh, and then you have source code, which is what we consider human readable. Yep. It's it's something that you can open up in an editor and look at it. And although you may not know what it does if you don't know the programming language it's written in, it at least looks like something structured and organized. It's got names. It's got words you probably recognize. There's some sort of evidence of a human intent to <laughs> impart instructions uh, if, in the source code. If you jump back far enough, at least to sort of when I was in school, source code was what you wrote. I don't think that's entirely true anymore just because there's now, obviously, you bring source codes in from other places. We write less and less source code now, even when doing original development, because a lot of the source code you have is, you know, if if you're building an interface, you may use like a drag and drop, uh, you know, a GUI builder to do it, and it sort of generates the source code you need in the background. I'm old school. I don't write code that way. Give me me my Linux command line and my VI editor, and that's (laughs) how I do everything. I've never never moved on from that since like the 90s. For those of you who don't know what a command line is oh just go look it up. Yeah, uh, just Google MS DOS and, 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 <laughs> and, and, then, and then get a warm blanket and prepare to cry. <laughs> and understand how we all had to learn computers. I still prefer the command line in Linux. I don't know. Um, so you know when you get when you get a program that you buy or really you're licensing it. We'll get into that in a second too. What you're really getting is the machine code. That's what you care about as the user because that's what you run. So when you double-click the icon on your desktop, the, you know, a copy of the program is loaded into your computer's memory and something called a program counter points to the first line of the machine code and it just starts going through line by line executing the code. And there's branching logic and other things. And, and that's, that's all you get. But you don't get the source code. You don't get the part that the programmers who work for the company actually sat down and typed into their keyboard. They usually keep that. It's considered a trade secret or confidential. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. 
one is if you've got the source code, then you understand all the architecture and how they built their program. Yeah. It makes it a lot easier to make a competing program. That's the real key. And I think one of the things to keep in mind about source code versus machine code versus object code, these types of things. For machine code, you can see, hey, this is, you know, I know that, that doing A causes B, but I don't necessarily know what the specific machine action is, which is going from A to B. And there yeah. may be multiple ways to actually implement yeah, that. Yeah, the, 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 the general structure and program logic is not usually easily discernible from the machine code, even though, I guess in theory, if you had the, the instruction set for the processor, you could reverse engineer exactly what it's doing. But it's, you know, I can't think of a good example of that, but it'd be kind of like taking a, you know, have you ever seen those games where they take a, a microscope and show you something at 65 times magnification and try and guess what it is? Yeah. It's like that. Like, you, you, you may get somewhere near the ballpark, it's green, it may be it's something in nature, yeah. but you're going to have no clue what you're looking at. Yeah, I th- that's actually a really good example, I think, as to what it is, which is the fact that, you know, you're getting the general gist of this, but there's generally a lot of ways this could be implemented yeah. in source code. And quite frankly, the, the uniqueness of different pieces of software, you know, why this thing runs in, you know, 8 milliseconds versus 10 milliseconds is the specific way that it has been written. And a lot yep. of that is the what essentially they pay software developers for. I mean, yeah. if you're a good software developer, that's what you're doing. Yeah, although a lot of that now is, is done at compile time. There was a time yeah. where it was all about optimizing things when you're writing the code, but anymore you just, you know, GCC-04, max, <laughs> maximum optimization, and you're all set. GCC, I should say G++. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> there so, may be a f- quite a bit of that during the course I'm, of this I'm, episode. You know, I, I promised myself I wouldn't get into all this stuff because I, I super He's geek out about to. I know, I know. I will try to withhold. Uh, so I think I think another reason why companies often don't give out the source code is something called security through obscurity, which is where if there's bugs, <laughs> everybody has the source code, they're much easier to find. So yeah. um, you know, sometimes you just want to keep the source code uh, private because you don't want others poking holes at it, maybe saying, look how poorly this is implemented or how sloppily this is done, finding security problems. A lot so, of it potentially also is, and I think when you talk about sort of not necessarily sloppily and things like that, a lot of software is built over time, is built by multiple developers, you're going to potentially be able to see, hey, this is where, you know, one developer ended and another developer began. That can create both excess code, you know, things that you just don't need in the program anymore, stuff like that. But it also, and I think the real key to this, it can create security holes that just nobody realized needed to be closed. Yep. Um, exactly. So that's one of the dangers. So, you know, when you get your software, you get the machine code, which is copyrighted. There's cases on that, that the machine code is copyrighted and owned by the company that uh, that makes the software. You don't usually get the source code, which is also separately copyrighted. Um, and this is a little bit like when we talked to, you know, last time we talked about the idea of music licensing. This is kind of when you think about the idea of like mechanical license versus license in the, the, mm-hmm. the sheet music, stuff like that. Same kind of idea in some yeah. respects. And, the, and so, and so, software's odd though, because it, it is copyrighted. There's no question. There's yep. been ruling since the 70s, I think. Software is copyrightable. I think, yeah, but it's it's definitely not that long ago, just because it hasn't yeah. been software for that long. It's that we weird, though. Of, well, we should go into this at some point, not today, but there's an interesting set of cases on this and, and sort of emergence in the Copyright Act as to how this worked. Software is like a lot of things. It seems like every time they redo the Copyright Act, the entire world reorganizes itself about <laughs> five years later. So we have the 1976 Copyright Act, then we had the VCR and the software explosion and all this other stuff that they could have dealt with in the act had they done it 10 years later. Well, one of the best examples is if you're going to simply register software for copyright, you're required to submit the code, but you don't have to submit all of it. They recognize it's long, but you have to submit the first and last 50 lines, if I remember correctly, or 250 lines. What does first and last that way anymore? Yeah, you know, when you had had one file that had all the code in it, then okay, sure, but but nowadays, like, you know, a a sophisticated software program may have uh, an enormous amount of files. You could have hundreds and hundreds of different files. What's the quote-unquote first file? Is it where the main 
main function starts, like in a language like Java, that's meaningless. Yeah, and that's and that's a real thing. So, but again, this still is the law. I mean, this is yeah, how you submit copyright for, for software, how you have to submit it. And it is, it's a bit of a problem because it's it's associated with, and again, I, I remember when we learned programming, you know, on Apple IIEs and stuff along those lines, where, you know, you're typing in basic and you're numbering the lines of code. I mean, yeah. those were the key things you had to do is number the lines so it knew what order to execute them in. So if you realized you forgot something, you could add it at the end, but you numbered it so it fit You always numbered by tens, remember? Yep. <laughs> in case you had to insert a line in between, yep. it would become line 15. You eventually hit a problem where you had to put in so much code that it didn't actually fit. You had to renumber everything. Yeah, you had a 15 to 16 yeah. and it's, wait a minute, I can't do this. There's a reason virtually no other language <laughs> requires line numbering. <laughs> Uh, but co- copyright is, in, in some ways, I think, a weird fit for software, just because the way that the rights you get with a copyright are written kind of contemplate, because co- software is considered a literary work, yep. kind of oddly, although that's probably the best fit of the categories of things yeah, you it's, can copyright. It's, like it's, it's a work of visual art. I yeah. mean, I mean sculpting it's, here. It, ex- it tells a story, I guess, in a sense. Um, but so let's go over the main the main copyright rights. One, the right to make copies, duh. Yep. Uh, two, the right to publicly distribute, perform, or display. And then three, the right to prepare derivative works. Yeah, and again, this isn't all of them. This is just sort of the main ones. The one, the main ones that would apply to software. Yep. Yeah, there's others like sound recording rights. We're not aren't relevant. Um, of these, probably the the copyright copyright is the most important <laughs> of the copyrights uh, because when you when you privately run your software, you're obviously not going to be publicly displaying or performing it. Um, and and, you know, most users aren't creating derivative works of the software itself. Self, yes. Yeah. Now, that's probably a bigger concern for the company that owns the copyright. They don't want people making new derivative works. And and legally, you can't. That's not to say somebody wouldn't, but um, they're, they're, they should be okay there. But the copying is where the problem comes in because every time you run the program, you make a copy. The machine will load a copy of the, the code into memory to run it, which technically means every time you run a program that you don't have a license to, you infringe the copyright because you make a new copy. That's kind of a scary thought there, isn't it? It really is. You know, every time you turn your computer on, you potentially infringe a copyright if you're running off software that isn't licensed. Um, and the reason why, I just comment that's kind of a scary concept. I don't know if we got into it particularly in the show, but the idea of statutory copyright um, violations, you can actually be found liable for copyright infringement and they can charge you damages based upon simply the number of infringements you have performed. Yeah, how many copies have you made? Yeah. You, if you, even if you, in this case, you turn the computer off or you shut the program down and then you delete the copy from memory, you know, five minutes later, Later, yeah, you still made a copy. You still made a copy. There's, there's no, there's yeah. no defense of yeah, but I got rid of it. <laughs> you could have made a thousand copies, even though you have none of them remaining. Yeah, um, and that's a, it's a really intriguing concept. Again, I think when it comes to software, because so much of copyright sort of assumed that the copy lingered. Yeah, which really doesn't exist in conjunction with these things in computers, and it's it's simply memory allocation. What kind of the memory is being used? Yeah. How the program is being carried around? Why this happens? Well, if you have virtual memory, it could get copied more. So I run a program, it loads into RAM, and then it swaps it out to virtual memory to load something else. So yep. I made a copy in a RAM, a copy back to the disk, a copy back to RAM. So running at once, I could make a number of copies. Yep. And that's I think that's a little bit of sort of where the, some of the weirdness of software does come in because when we think about running a program or we think about, hey, I'm going to you know turn this video game on, we're not thinking about the fact that the video game is running five different times. Yeah. We're thinking about it saying, no, we're running it. It's just running once. You're just thinking, I've only got one copy and I've never made more. But, yeah. but you have. <laughs> yeah, and so and I think it's just worth keeping in mind that in the back of your mind in this is that 
when we're talking about things that are going on in the computer, unless you're you know diehard tech person that's playing around a lot with computers, you don't necessarily realize what your computer is doing when it's running. Even the software. if you are, I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a techie and I don't think about this stuff every time yeah. I run the program. Some people do that because I Some mean they're dealing do. with they're the people who are programming virtual memory and things along yeah. those lines, so they have to think through these issues. Well, but, the way the way you get around this is you know obviously the copyright owner is the only person who can make copies. So yeah. what what gives you the right? And it's not because you paid for it. That is not what gives you the right. <laughs> it is because they you've been granted a License. That's what you paid for. That's, uh, yeah, we have to, really what you're paying for is to get the license, but you don't have to be paid. You can be granted a license for free. If somebody's willing to do that, then you can do whatever the license says. If you ever read a software license, it usually says something like, you have the right to run, you know, to install one copy on one computer and run it. Yeah. And they have to say that because otherwise, I have the right to install one copy, but so what? When I run it, <laughs> I got to make a second copy. Yeah, so exactly. anymore. Uh, not, not all licenses are written properly, in my opinion. I've read a lot of them that don't actually ever say you can install and run, <laughs> which I think technically means, if we're being very literal, you don't actually have the right to execute the program because uh, that would be infringing the copyright. Yeah. Nobody said you can make more copies, just install the one. Although, again, I think what you bump into in a lot of this is the, the sort of assumption that you know these license agreements are long and complicated yeah. enough as it is. Courts are not going to necessarily say, hey, because you left something out for simplicity that everybody knew this was yeah, what you're, was intended. Yeah, you're going to win that argument. And, and, and as a practical matter, the, the copyright holders never going to enforce that, right? If they start telling people that, yeah, you paid for a copy, but you don't actually get to use it, I mean, yeah, unjust enrichment. There's a lot of... <laughs> yeah, there's there's going to be some legal ramifications fraud. coming back. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah there, there's a lot lot of false advertising. Like, there's, there's you know, that's not going to happen, but we're being very technical here because this is a technical area of the law. Uh, in effect, the license is really conceptually an affirmative defense. If you ever defend a copyright infringement lawsuit, uh, license or implied license is one of the defenses you raise. Uh, and you know, because but for the license, what you're doing is a copyright infringement. Correct, but the yeah. license from the copyright holder says, "But I'm going to let you do it anyway." Yep. And that's actually, I think it's important to keep in mind. It's one of these things that a lot of people look at and they say, "Oh, well, what I'm doing is okay." There, there's something in conjunction with, and something you, you definitely learn in law school and you pick up uh, repeatedly, is the concept of what you are doing is allowed versus what you are doing is a defense mm-hmm. are two very different things. And the way I oftentimes describe it is it's, you know, I didn't kill someone is not breaking the law. Self-defense is a defense. Yeah. It's still saying you did it, but I'm okay. What I did does not comprise a violation yeah. of the law. Yeah, an affirmative defense basically is an, a tacit acknowledgement that uh, the plaintiff in the lawsuit could prove facts that would show that you violated whatever the law in question is. Yes. But there's a there's a public policy reason why you nevertheless should not be held accountable for that. Self-defense is one of the big ones. If someone's yeah. coming after you with a knife, I don't have to stand there and take it. You know, I can fight back. Yeah. You know, even if I wind up hurting them, I've still committed a battery. It's just excused. Yeah, and, and I use that one as the example because I think that's sort of the best one. And because particularly the phrase is self-defense, so we're yeah. talking about a defense. Um, and, you know, the, the law gets into these issues a lot. And it's an area where I think it's one of those things that gets glossed over a lot by the law and media mm-hmm. of the difference between a defense versus not violating the law. Like fair use. We'll get into that later, too. Yep. It's one of the most widely misunderstood. It's not a copyright. It's fair use. No, it's still copyrighted. No, it's still copyrighted. And it's still an infringement. It's just also a fair use. All three things are true at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and again, it's this difference that basically says one of them says, I literally did not violate the law. Law says yeah. I cannot do A and I did not do A. 
the, the second one is the law says I cannot do A. I say I did do A, but my do, doing of A was justified for another reason yeah. under the law. Well, and, and part, lawyers confuse this, and this may also just be because of how the procedural rules work. But you know, when someone asserts copyright infringement, you're usually going to assert an affirmative defense of ineligible subject matter, that what you yeah. claim to have copyrighted is not actually copyrighted at all. But that's not a defense, really. That's, that's more just yeah. saying that that's more of a judge from the pleadings thing, right? Like you can't actually assert this because you don't own the copyright, so we should just win. Yep. But those facts all have to be kind of sussed out in discovery, so you, you can't actually win at that point. So we tend to just list a bunch of affirmative defenses, and we include in there things that are not technically affirmative defenses. Yep. And part of it's also, I think, just because of the nature of the way it's a back and forth. And yeah, the procedural papers, nature. You, yeah. you have to assert your responses back as affirmative defenses, because that's kind of what the papers require you to do, even though some of the things you may be asserting back are technically not affirmative defenses. Yeah, and, and what, what, what happens in practice is, you know, the judge gets all the evidence on this, we submit all of it, and then cite it all at once. So yep. even though you may have all kinds of evidence that it's not actually copyrightable, if the evidence is not overwhelming, they're generally going to let the lawsuit proceed regardless to a conclusion. The judge is going to wait and see who wins and then decide whether it's copyrightable or not. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's it's one of those things. Again, I think you know when when you're looking at a lot of what you see in popular media, what you see you know reported on the news and stuff like that, it's something we've gotten into this in, into into the show repeatedly in conjunction with. There is a lot of nuance here, and I, I very really joke about it. Is it's you know you get a lot of the comments of why people hate lawyers, and the answer to it is is because their answer to every legal question is maybe. Maybe. And my argument back is that's the only appropriate answer to every legal question is maybe. But the the reason why I think you you get into it is that a lot of times the answer is long. And, um, the answer is usually more nuanced than p- what people want to hear. Yeah, it's more nuanced than what the people want to hear. It's it also is one of those things that oftentimes annoys me about when I like see talking heads on TV and things like that. Yeah. Like, but th- it's so simple to understand. And I'm like, as soon as you say it's simple, you know, yeah, you're wrong. or let me explain <laughs> it to you in a simple way. Right? That what you're really saying is let me explain it to you in a wrong yeah. way. Let me um, ignore all the nuance and just give you easy talking points yeah. that, that are easily digestible. And I mean, and we've done that on this show too. You know, we have yeah, we to tried to. We're going to have to for yeah, this episode where we try to say, hey, let's simplify things to the extent we can. One of the things to keep in mind is that when we're saying we're simplifying things. We're tr- we are getting rid of some of the nuance. There's always the possibility that the way the nuances play out, you could end up with the opposite conclusion. You could yeah. end up with opposite facts, even though from the, the same simplification, you get to the same point. Um, and that's an important thing to keep in mind. Yeah. And I think for this episode in particular, it's worth pointing out, there is a lot of nuance in this area. That's exactly the direction we're heading, because we're going to talk about a pending case before the Supreme Court right now, a Google v. Oracle, that implicates some of these uh, licensing questions. And we're going to greatly, greatly oversimplify it yes. <laughs> um, for the point of making it understandable. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot that goes into that, and a lot of the sort of commentary about that case um, is, is based upon a misunderstanding of, of how the legal system works and what the ruling actually is. And there are specific facts in that case that if they were slightly different, it could come out very differently. Yeah. I, I think it's it's interesting. I think, I think that, you know, if you listen to podcasts regularly, I think a lot of podcasts that get into other complicated subjects, you know, economics, mm-hmm. um, you know, stuff related to, you know, uh, like sociology, kind of more scientific areas. The, Everything that does this, in some sense, has to simplify because the underlying material is so complicated. complicated. So and you know, it's it's the kind of thing where we can look at it and we can say, hey, you know, for us to explain Google View Oracle on a podcast, we can tell you, well, just go read all the pleadings. But I mean, you're talking tens of thousands yeah. of pages of pleading of evidence, which you're not going to do. And so the the concept with it is, is to the extent we can simplify it into something that you can listen to in 20 minutes. You know, we have to simplify. We literally couldn't read into evidence, you know, half the documents <laughs> in the time. 
time, you know, a third of the documents in time. So going back to the license, you know, the copyright owner gives you the license and they get to decide what you can and cannot do with the software. They usually give you, like I said, the machine code and they give you some other stuff that goes with it. Uh, they're not going to give you the source code usually. Very rare that you get that. Yep. And then and then the license itself defines what you can do and, and that allows for things like price discrimination. So if you buy a corporate license to run a, a particular piece of software, it probably costs three to four times as much as the home version, even though it has all the, the same basic functionality, but the scope of what you can do with it is broader. You yep. can access it remotely or you can install it on five machines instead of just one or, or things like that. For those of you who are, are sort of really not versed in computer stuff, this is where you think is like enterprise edition. You may hear yeah. those kind of things. Um, a big one I always like to sort of pick off is, like, is the Microsoft products you'll see professional edition versus home edition. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a lot of what this is. It's variations in the license. The software is not necessarily that different. Now, yeah. a lot of cases it is somewhat different in the functionality that provides Microsoft's you. a good example. You can buy like the professional or used to be able to buy the professional edition of Office just off the shelf at like a Best Buy or something. Back when you bought software yeah. off a shelf. But that just had like a shrink wrap EULA in it, you know, or, or a click wrap. Uh, and the rights you get for that version of Microsoft Office Professional were different than if you bought through like a corporate bulk licensing deal. You pay more for the bulk license, but you uh, you get more rights that come with yep. it because you're buying more stuff from them. So, you know, the exact same software, the exact same version could still have different rights under different licenses. Yep. And, and again, the other thing I want to just point out is one of the things that's key to think about this when you think about buying software, and again, you know, we come from a world where buying software meant you went down to Best Buy and you bought a box off mm-hmm. the shelf that had CDs in it. That's obviously or not what you do. Discs. Or floppy disks. That's obviously <laughs> not what you do anymore. Now it's a download type of procedure. You're going to, you know, get it from an app store or something along those lines. But you're not getting source code, and that's a real key sort of I think to yeah. keep in mind with this. You are not buying source code at this point in time. You're buying effectively machine code or something along very similar to that, where you don't have that underlying material. Yep. So this is where open source comes in. Uh, there's actually two concepts here, and they're related, but not 100% overlapping. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so you have free software and open source software. Yep. And these two are two different sort of groups of, of licensing models for software, uh, and we'll kind of go into each one. So let's start with free software. Free software is, and I'm going to editorialize slightly here, a sort of quasi-philosophical movement about you know, quote-unquote software ethics and the ethical use of, of software and copyrights. And this movement was started by a guy named Richard Stallman, I think in the 1990s, uh, based on this idea that users of software, again, users, not the people who actually write and create software, but the people who get Use the it. software, should be able to safely run, adapt, and redistribute, and by adapt I mean change, and redistribute the software without any legal restraints. Uh, and so he founded something called the Free Software Foundation to provide these these freedoms. Uh, and I won't go into what they are because they're they're sort of detailed and have to do with uh, you know how you modify and distribute software. That is different from open source. Open source grew out of the free software movement uh, and was sort of a, the idea that we, we like the ideas behind free software and the sort of portability and open nature of it, but the sort of quasi-philosophical elements are turning people off and are, you know, in, in a lot of senses, commercially unworkable, which is inhibiting the adoption of open source. So why don't we I think broaden you, the net? One thing I think important to put when we say commercially unworkable, commercially unworkable within a capitalist society. And I think that's a sort of, you know, sort of key component in conjunction with this is the idea that when we're talking about a lot of the concepts of this free software and what we really say is free software, 
it really is this idea that the end user is given affirmative yeah. rights regardless of what the creator wants the rights to be. The open source movement, I think, sort of looks at it and says there's some value in giving the users those rights, but at the same time, we want to make sure that the creator has some control still over them. Yeah. So I think that's where you kind of look at it and say is it's, in some sense, copyright says the, user, the, the creator has all the rights. The free software movement sort of says the user has all the rights, um, or at least a fine package of rights which can never be altered the open source movement kind of trying to strikes in the middle and says there's benefits of both sides yeah well, why don't we go through the freedoms real quick? So under the free software model, and this is this is the GNU General Public License or GPL, if you've ever heard of that. Uh, you know, Mr. Stallman basically did not like the way that the copyright regime worked, and had what, what's really kind of a brilliant idea. Let's turn it on its head. Let's use the copyright to undo the copyright. Effectively, you know? yes. Which is why they call it copy left, which I, which is a sort of a typical bad developer pun. <laughs> <laughs> it is a total developer pun, recognizing that it's the right has nothing to do with right yeah. versus left. He's got the wrong right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the 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 right right, not the left right. <laughs> um, so so there's four four freedoms, which are are in, in true developer fashion labeled freedom zero through three, <laughs> which is, is a joke yeah, that exactly. only developers would get. So one is a freedom to run the program for any purpose. And that's an important distinction because you normally pretty much always have the right to run the program. But he's saying for any. purpose. Purpose. So this would both eliminate attempts to restrict, you know, why you can use it and like academic licenses and things yep. like that. Uh, the freedom to study how the program works and change it so it will do what you want. Yep. Uh, this would be creative, creating derivative works and modifying the functionality. Uh, the third freedom, freedom two, is <laughs> the freedom to redistribute copies so that you can help your neighbor. So you get to give away copies uh, without charging people if you don't want to. And the, the fourth freedom, freedom three, is the freedom to distribute your modified versions uh, to others. Yeah. And you know, copyright would not normally allow any of this unless the author gave you permission because it requires the right to create derivative works yep. and to publicly distribute copies and copies of the modifications, which you otherwise not only couldn't make but wouldn't own if you did. Yep. Yeah, and let's that's, that's just make that, I think, very clear. Copyright essentially would deny all of these freedoms. There's, so what, there's nothing underneath you that copyright lets you do. What GPL says is, me as the author, I'm going to issue this license, which says, none of that's true. Yeah. Uh, if you're getting my source code, you get to do all these things. Also, you are prohibited from using this source code in any way with an, another project or product, which takes away any of the freedoms that I've given you, yep. which is where the viral licensing thing comes in and sort of the misconception that if you ever use open source with proprietary code, you have to open source the whole thing. Not always true. For the GPL, generally true, but it's only if you exercise these freedoms. If you're just going to use it internally and you modify the code and run it for your own purposes, you don't have to do anything because you're not denying anybody else any of those rights. It's once you distribute the source code to somebody else, all these things trigger and you have to open source everything. Now, for a commercial company, obviously, if you're not distributing the software, what are you doing? You know. Yeah. So, uh, as a practical matter, GPL is often unworkable with a, with a commercial enterprise. Not always, but, but again, frequently. I want to just focus on a little bit and just want to point out the fact of how this works. What we have here is we have copyright saying you have none of these freedoms. What you then have is a license agreement saying, as the original author, the copyright holder, who did, can, has the right to deny yeah. you all these freedoms. And gets I to am, pick the conditions. And gets to pick the conditions. I am affirmatively granting you the right to do these, but part of that grant of right is that you cannot take that right from anybody else. Exactly right. And so, you know, it, there's an, it's essentially a double negative, and I think that's the sort of best way to think about this is to it admit it. It makes it very confusing, like to yeah. try to administer legally. And the other, the other thing about it is, is ultimately the enforcement mechanism for 
for how you enforce violations of this license. That somebody has been granted these rights now denies them to another person is ultimately the underlying copyright yeah. which denies them in the first place. Yeah. You'd say, one, you've breached the license. You don't have the right to use the software. Yep. So you would either seek an injunction from a court ordering you to open source everything, or if, if you're going to refuse to comply with that, you don't have a license, and guess what? Now you're infringing, you're infringing. my copyright. <laughs> yeah, and and so it's a very, it, it, I think that's the, one of the key things to keep in mind is that when we talk about, particularly, again, free software, you know, the, 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 the GNU license, what we've really got here is we've got copyright law being used to enforce the non-enforcement of copyright law. Yeah. It's, it's really bizarre, and that, that's where sort of the quasi-philosophical element comes in, that there's a belief that software needs to work this way for, for ethical reasons. Yeah. I'll also just comment generally as, as a lawyer. This is an extremely interesting legal scenario, which, I mean, this is not the only place this kind of thing occurs, just to keep that in mind. No, but it's, it's particularly strange here, and it, it's, it's caused a lot of trouble because the licenses, if they were written by lawyers... I like to know who they are because they do not read like licenses written by lawyers. And when I read like GPL2, uh, to, to quote Inigo Montoya, I don't think it means what you think it means. Uh, when, when, when I read it... <laughs> you didn't it, get that reference? It's, you're too young. Yeah, uh, it's Princess Bride. I don't think it means what they think it means. I, I've, I've read through it, and the language is, is not nearly as clear uh, as, as it should be. And attempts in GPL3 to make it more clear, I think, have made it less clear. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm guessing Stallman or somebody in the, in the uh, Free Software Foundation wrote these. I can tell because the clauses are numbered like a programmer would number it. There's not a section one. It starts in section zero. Yep. Only a developer would be that pedantic. <laughs> I, I, I can smell my own, so I can say that. Right? Um, but yeah, and I should, we also point out that free does not mean free as in price. You can still charge people to distribute your programs that you write using open source. But you also, if you distribute it, have to give them the source code itself for free. Yep. Yeah, and so I think that, again, it's you've got this, and again, what we want to talk about when we're talking about this sort of free software, and again, we've, we've used open source as a term here a couple times, because I think a lot of people do use Colloquially, it's used broadly to capture source. everything, yeah. but there's free software. Open source is broader and does not have the same concept of you also have to impose the same conditions that I'm imposing to everybody else. Yes. So the license is where I say, I'm going to open source my software for anybody to use in any way they want, no strings attached. To me, that's true software freedom, but in the Free Software Foundation, you're also, by not restricting people downstream, you're enabling them to deny the same rights you gave them to others. Yep. Open source takes a step back and says, I don't care. Do whatever you want, including use it, close source, resell it, don't give it, don't share it, whatever you want to do. Yeah, and, and that's, I think, one of the things that is very interesting, and I think it's just something to keep in mind. When we talk about the idea of truly free software, truly free software exists. It's called public domain. And, and public domain software, you can do anything you like with. You are truly free to do anything you want with. The point of it is, is that one of those freedoms is to deny the freedom yeah. to do other to do that same thing to other people, which is the one freedom they're trying yeah. to deny in conjunction with free software. I think it's one of the reasons. Yeah, the, the, I think it's one of the reasons that the Free Software Foundation has sort of created this this schism within the open source community is the the sort of the the, the marriage to this philosophical element uh, has driven a lot of people away. And turned them off is where you know we're saying in order to preserve your freedoms I must take them away from you like yeah. it has a sort of uh, I don't know Orwellian <laughs> it does a bit of an Orwellian kind of yeah, to feel it, to it. That, uh, you know when, when you when you when you're not making anything commercial you don't care because you all this free stuff and it's awesome but yeah. Um, so yeah, so that, that's sort of the difference between the open source and the proprietary stuff. And there's a lot of different open source licensing models. And this is where I find lawyers in particular get really confused. Because we say things in open source like, oh, it's the MIT license, it's the Berkeley license, yep. it's the Apache license. And lawyers are like, wait a minute, 
how is MIT involved? Yeah. You know, like, well, they're not. That's just what it's called. It's yeah. very confusing. So let's talk about that. Kirk, you know some of these, right? I, I definitely know a few of them. I mean, MIT license is definitely one you bounce out there. You know, BSD, Apache, you know, Mozilla. They're yeah. all ones you hear thrown out there, you know, regularly. I mean, one I always remember is Antler. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, so unlike proprietary software where each company will usually write its own license, right? So Microsoft writes the Microsoft license, yep. and IBM writes an IBM license. If you go to that About Windows tab at the, you know, sort of under the help thing, there's an About Windows tab. You can actually access your license agreement. Yep, that usually. license agreement was written by Microsoft. It was not written and yeah, for, you know, for this specific product yep. that you're licensing. Open source is different. The open source products and modules are licensed under sort of a template license that was previously written by somebody else for some other unrelated purpose yep. but they but they're really generic terms and the developer like those terms so they're borrowing them yeah and generally it's written a lot of the associations like Mozilla as a perfect example the Mozilla license is based because it's how Mozilla was licensed yeah that's where the license term originally came from it's sort of like saying hey I'm licensing you this proprietary software under the Microsoft license because I cut and pasted the Windows micro Microsoft yeah. Windows license into another piece of software yeah. it's just when you're talking about people who intend to keep proprietary rights that's not done yeah and and it wouldn't work for Microsoft because Microsoft's license is going to say, this is the license to Windows 10. And you can and cannot do the following things. You have to change at least Windows 10, right? Uh, Plus query whether there's a copyright in the license itself. (laughs) (laughs) Which we can get into later as the the copyright into legal documents. So you'll sometimes hear references to like the MIT license. It's because at some point, MIT open sourced a bunch of stuff under a license and it said copyright MIT. And so now we just say it's the MIT license. We just mean it's under the same terms that MIT originally licensed yeah. its open source, source software. But MIT is not involved in any way in what, what we're licensing. Yeah, and part of the reason I think you also bump into these things with it is because most of these sort of you know open source licenses, the license itself is also open source and public. Yep. So therefore, you can simply say, hey, I like the terms of the way this license works, it is written generically. It's not written for a particular piece of software. So if you like the terms, you can simply use the license. It also makes it a convenient shorthand. Everything which is the MIT license technically is the same license agreement. Mm-hmm. So anything which, if a court interprets an element of the MIT license, all things subject to the MIT license would be interpreted the same way. You see this in transactional work a lot too, where you're where a company's buying software assets or copyright assets, and there will usually be something in the in the in the asset purchase agreement that says there's either no open source software, or if there is, we're going to list it on a schedule. But all anybody really wants to know is, are you using GPL software or yes. not? And it's a nice shorthand for lawyers to say, no, it's all MIT, BSD, Apache, and fine. Nobody nobody cares. Yep. Uh, as soon as you say GPL, then there's a whole separate phone call you need to have to talk about. <laughs> yep. And, and, and that's the sort of, I think it is an interesting thing to sort of talk about when we say this. There really are two licenses here, GPL and everybody Everything else. else yeah. <laughs> there's some fuzzy ones that, are, that, that have, you know, if you're going to modify the code, they impose some things. And I think like, like Perl's artistic license is, as much as I criticize the GPL for being sort of badly written. The artistic license is also <laughs> very vague in some respects. Yep. And there's also differences. I think the Apache license has like a, a patent license included. The rest of them do not. Yep. So if the software is patented, uh, then you know the license doesn't get you around that. It, it gets you the copyright to the source code, but does not cover any patents. So. A few of the ones I think to also keep in mind, this is also where Creative Commons come in, comes in. Yeah. Obviously, we've encountered Creative Commons licenses. Creative which Commons, run the gamut. Yeah, which run the gamut. In many respects, Creative Commons licenses were trying to take what I think the defaults of the MIT license, the BSD license, all these other licenses, and formalize them in one form yep. that says, okay, if I want these, if I want my license to be this, 
this is how we set up the terms. Yeah. That's what this license is. And it, they made these sort of generic statements. Okay, if you want it to be that you can use it in a third world country, but not in a first world country for free, here's how we're going to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's you universally accept this term, which is designed to be universal. So you, you kind of have that falling into here too, where you have all these sort of separate licenses that, that I think were first in some respects yeah. that sort of came out and became more popular. You then have Creative Commons trying to go in and say, hey, let's make these more universal. Let's clean it up, yeah. And clean it up. And all at the same time, unfortunately, that got kind of stuck on top of another licensing scheme, which is already accepted. So what you have in many respects is you have a very large number of possible licenses that something is yeah. licensed under. But what you also, again, I think you have to keep in mind when we're talking about it, most of these licenses are fairly similar. Yeah, at least at least in in intent, uh, the, the GPL licenses are the most unusual because yep. they have this viral licensing aspect. Uh, most of the rest are, are are generally the same. MIT and BSD are are all but interchangeable. It's really about the warranties, disclaimers, and they just still they still have conditions apply. Like you still have to include a copy of the license yep. and a copyright notice. You just don't have to open source everything you include it with. Yep. And that's I think one of the key things about this when we talk about viral, um, and it's you know for those of you who are used to you know sort of obviously like the viral being used as YouTube videos going viral, something along those lines. In some sense, this is, I think, probably where that term kind of came from is in conjunction with some of this viral licensing. The concept behind viral licensing as to what it is is that essentially once the license attaches, it, it attaches to everything it touches. It truly is yeah. like a virus. It passes with everything that it touches. Um, and the the truly viral nature is kind of unique to GPL. Um, and that's where when we say this is kind of this quasi-philosophical type feeling, in many respects, that's what we're talking about, yep. is that nature of saying, once you've accepted this, you cannot avoid it. A lot of these other licenses have the, we're going to tell you that you have to accept this, but at the same time, you can avoid doing it in the future. GPL has this sort of purpose intent of it being, no, you can't avoid it in the future. And that's that's a lot of the reason why GPL gets talked about differently, is that viral nature. As, as a practical matter, free software is it's it's free as in freedom, but it really becomes free as in beer, as they used to say. <laughs> because once you can get the source code, there's often no reason to to pay for the actual software itself. Yep. And successful open source companies like uh, Red Hat, Fedora, I assume they're still around. Uh, you know, Ubuntu they they make money elsewhere because the distributions are all are yep. all free. There's no reason to pay. Now, for interestingly, them. there are some places where I think, and it's something you're starting to see. I think even more and more today in software, where you're seeing stuff like um, the concept of. Um, um, sort of micropayments and sort of improved software mm-hmm. and things like that, um, you're definitely seeing a little bit more of the idea that y- you can pay somebody a small amount to get something easier. So there's definitely systems out there where it's, yes, you can access this data via an open source license, via something along those lines, but that may take you an hour and you need to have some basic knowledge of computers versus you can simply pay us a dollar and we'll give you exactly what you want. Yep. Um, you know, those are the kind of things that you, you do see a bit of that now, and I think that's a little bit of sort of what, quite frankly, I think that's a little bit of what GPL intended of the idea of saying, yeah, you can make it easier for somebody, and somebody can quite willingly pay you for doing making it easier, so long as the hard way is always still available. Yep, yep. <laughs> Well, let's talk about Google v. Oracle because this case um, involves open source software, although the real legal issues aren't about open source specifically. Nevertheless, people are concerned that there will be serious implications for open source. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't heard of this case, uh, you're going to put Oracle aside. Really, it's Sun uh, because Sun is the company that uh, came up with Java in the early 90s. 
and then later sold it off to Oracle. So Oracle sort of what we call the successor in interest to Sun. Uh, the case is really about the Java API, and I guess I have to explain what an API is. It's short for Application Programming Interface, which is a fancy way of saying the names of the functions in the programming language. Yeah. And so let's explain what the functions are. When you write software, you often find yourself repeating the same code over and over. So let's say I'm going to read somebody's, somebody's going to type something in from the keyboard, and I need to listen for the keyboard to have a key get pushed, and then once the computer tells me, hey, they pushed a key, tell me what key it was. I don't want to rewrite that code every time somebody pushes a key. It's not possible. Yep. So you've just got a collection of logic that listens for a keyboard press and then does something with whatever data we get off the keyboard. Same with the mouse click or anything else. So these are called, in, in my day, it was called a function, which yep. is an old math term. Now they're called methods, but it's all the same thing. It's sort of a prepackaged set of instructions that do the same thing. Often you have to give it information. So I may have uh, a method that's called when I get uh, a, a line, you know, someone types something into the keyboard and hits enter, that whole line is given to me exactly what they typed in. That's the input to my function, and then my function will do something uh, with that, maybe yep. display it on the screen or print it or something. Now keep in mind when we talk about this, if we talk about like a programming languages, effectively this is every programming language, all the way back every to basic, language, yeah. stuff like that. If you're writing anything but machine code, which is where you're physically telling it how to move bits around, yeah. you're you're using these functions, these methods, whatever you want yeah, to call them. Yeah, called subroutines or yeah, something like that. You know, it's what it is. So this is, in some sense, the, the, the core of a computer language. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, and then there's, you know, the actual code itself that, you know, for, for what it does. So, you know, if I want to read something off the network, I'm probably going to have a, a function called read, or network read, or read from the network, or whatever you want to call it. You yeah. Whatever you want, you could just call it X. It doesn't matter what it's called. Uh, usually, you want it to be something that's that people remember that clues you into what it does. But that's about readability more than copyrightability. Uh, so Java ha- is a programming language that has a rich set of pre-written code that does a lot of the stuff that you want to do. So that when you're writing the programs, you don't have to redo all that stuff. It already knows how to listen for the keyboard presses. You don't have to do that. It already knows how to display a button and listen for a button to get clicked and things like that. And uh, over time, developers who use Java a lot get to know what those functions are called. Uh, they don't know exactly how they're implemented behind the scenes. They yep. don't care. They just know what they do. Uh, and so you can you learn to write code really quickly because you don't have to look up uh, what these is called the API call or the signature. Yep. You know what what the name of the function is and what what parameters to pass to it. I'm well, going to just quickly jump on sort of a thing for, for those of you guys who may be hardware people and a good way to sort of think about this. You know, when you're using like a chip that's provided to you and it'll tell you what the pins do. So it'll say, okay, this pin is an addition function, you know, stuff yeah. like that. In some sense, the, the API is like explaining what the pins do. Yeah. You don't know how the chip You don't care what the circuitry is underneath them. What, what it's doing, but you know that if I take this pin and this pin, it will add the two, you know, signals that yeah. are coming in on these pins. So that's, it's the same kind of idea in, in software as we can say if in hardware as to what this thing is, it's to enable you to not need to know what's in the black box in order to make the black box work. You just, just know what it's know called. What you put in and what yep. you get out. So uh, when Google was designing uh, Android, uh, well, they bought Android from somebody else, but uh, as they were you know, getting that up to speed to compete with the iPhone, they wanted to use Java, uh, which is a language that a lot of developers already knew, which would you know make it easier to, to find people and, and get you know, recruit talent. Uh, at the time, Java was um, open sourced, but the API itself was not. So, although you could you know get the Java compilers and all those kind of things, the API itself was not open sourced. 
so uh, Google went to Sun and said, uh, "We want to use uh, we want to use this, and since the open source license won't work for what we want, uh, we need to to get a license to the. Uh, there's more to it than this. I'm simplifying greatly for those of you who know on the inside, but basically, Google needed a commercial license. The open source license was not going yeah, to be. They sufficient. couldn't get the standardly available license yeah. that was available to everyone. Yeah. They needed a specific. There's one. a the short version is an open software development kit that would not work. They wanted the standard edition. So uh, the negotiations fell apart, and there are competing reasons about why. According to Google, Sun wanted to exercise too much control over how the Android uh, ecosystem was going to work. According to Oracle, Google just wanted to make a non-compatible Java virtual machine that would basically fork off Android by itself so it would not be compatible with the rest of Java. I don't know who's right. It's not really relevant. It's, it's relevant to the well, fact that this is what they're fighting about in conjunction yeah, with the court. That's what they're fighting like about. That, and actually, I take that back. It may be relevant to how the court looks at this. Although, when I look at like the official Federal Circuit decisions, they're basically adopting Google's explanation that, that Sun wanted too much control over this. So that's what's in the actual case opinion. If you look at the Wikipedia summary, a eh, different story emerges. And of course, who wrote the Wikipedia summary might have something to do with that. Yeah, I didn't check, so I don't know. At any event, uh, they reached an impasse, and Google decided to, quote, do Java anyway and defend its decision, perhaps making enemies along the way, end quote. Uh, That quote appears in the case decision. So Google copied verbatim the entire declaring code of 37 of Java's API packages, which is a total of 11,500 lines of code. In the grand scheme of Java, not that much. In the grand scheme of the API, it's 100% of these 37 uh, API uh, definitions. But then Google rewrote the actual implementation. So they kept the names but rewrote how it works themselves. But it still did the same thing. Did the same thing. And Google basically argued that the API itself is not copyrightable, which is something developers, uh, in my experience, have long believed anyway, although I think it's a sort of industry mythology. I have put copyright notices in my header files since 1994, so I don't know why people think that, but they do. So in 2014, uh, a federal court of appeals confirmed that the API is in fact copyrightable. There's a lot of complicated legal doctrines involved, a lot of which we've talked about on this show, but we'll go through a couple. One is the difference between a copyright in the literal elements and what they call the structure, sequence, and organization, or SSO. So the literal elements, Kirk, is literally what appears on the screen, the yep. names of the methods. Yep, yeah, that's, I mean, we're talking about physical, literal yeah. text. So math.maximum like or math.cosine, something yeah. like that. The, the sequence, structure, and organization is the particular selection, inclusion, and ordering of those methods. How did you organize them into this? It's sort of a taxonomy. You know, there's a java.lang.math.cosine and java.lang.display.whatever. So yeah, they had to organize and select how we were going to, to group these functions together into related functionality in a way that's going to be easy for developers to remember, in a way that makes sense, so that functionality of that similar nature is grouped together. You know, math is easy, right? I yeah. mean, if it's math, it's math. But in other areas, it's more confusing. You know, do I want to have my, my you know, buffered readers be part of my network code? But I can read buffered data from a file, too. So do I have a generic buffered reader and then a network version, a file version that branches off of that, or a different version within my file and my network packages? There's a lot of decisions to make here. Uh, I've tried designing stuff like this before. It's hard because uh, there's always two ways to do everything. Yep. So <laughs> Google... More like 15, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, a lot more. So, you know, there's a question about... and and, and 
whether or not the literal elements, the names of the methods would be copyrightable, the particular way that you've organized them yeah. also could be copyrightable, separate and apart from the methods. Uh, there's also the question of short words and phrases, not normally copyrightable. And most of these things are short words and phrases. Yeah. We're not talking about particularly long statements. These are not really even sentences in many respects. They're collections of four or five words, probably yeah. at the longest. Mass.maximum. Yeah, they're know? put together in a particular way to mean something. And sometimes you can kind of look at it and say, it's not a full word, it's the word without the vowels removed. We all know what the word is mm-hmm. because, you know, when we see it on a vanity plate, <laughs> we know what it's referring to most of the time. But, uh, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing where it's still not the word. <laughs> There's also something called the merger doctrine, which goes back to the idea expression dichotomy, which we talked about before, which is basically the expression can be copyrighted, but the idea cannot. Yep. The merger doctrine says that for some things, if there's only one way to say it, or really only a couple of ways to say it, the idea and the expression basically merge together and are the same thing. Yep. And the final one is uh, sans affair, which we talked about, which is, you know, if, if, if there's only so many ways to express things, then things that you have to include to express it yep. are not part of the copyright. Generally, if you're writing a murder mystery, somebody has to die. So yeah. you can't say yeah. that somebody dying is copyrightable. Yeah. If I'm drawing a bear, it's going to look like a bear. And yeah. the things that make it look like a bear, two eyes and nose and ears, <laughs> not, not part of, I'm not infringing a copyright because that has those things in common. Yep. Uh, Google basically argued interoperability. They said that, um, you know, in order for interoperability between multiple platforms, and systems, uh, they had to be able to reuse the API because this practice is done all the time in open source. When you know uh, Linux is a good example, Linux copied the entire Unix API for uh, its uh, its system calls. Um, but uh, the, the court didn't find that convincing because interoperability is irrelevant to whether it's copyrightable. Yep. It may have to do with whether Google infringed the copyright or not. Affirmative it, defense. Remember yes. we started there? But nothing to do with whether it is, in fact, copyrightable. So the Federal Circuit held that the API is copyrightable but sent the case back for another trial on whether Google infringed the copyright by copying what it copied. That case then came out in Google's favor, went back to the Federal Circuit uh, on fair use. Uh, again, arguing mostly interoperability, uh, and I think Google also threw in some, some, but we still don't think it's copyrightable arguments. Uh, the Federal Circuit reversed in favor of Oracle and held that as a matter of law, what Google did was not a fair use. Kirk. How yep. many appellate decisions are you aware of holding that fair use does not exist as a matter of law? Very, very few. There aren't many. <laughs> this uh, might be one of a handful. I, I think that's probably why Google was pretty excited to get the ruling that they got. Um, this is pretty rare. Fair use is very fact-intensive as an analysis, and it's 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 pretty unusual. So this is um, – I'm not saying it's, it's necessarily wrong, and it's not unheard of either – but certainly it raised some eyebrows. Yeah, and, and it is, it's, th- this is a, a, we're talking about sort of legal effect here and the thing sort of with this. It's not how this case came down, that this is yeah. what they found. It's how they found it. Um, and again, it's a ruling of a matter of law basically says it does not matter what the underlying facts are, the outcome must be this way. Well, sort of. I, I would disagree slightly. I okay. would say based on the factual record at trial. This is us uh, being nuanced. Yeah. The, based, on, based on the facts at trial, those facts as yes. a matter of law do not constitute a fair use. There could be additional facts, even in this case, that were not part of the record that could make it a fair use, but they weren't but introduced, they're not to introduced to trial. Uh, so, so, again, so they're yeah. not relevant. So yeah, they're saying under these facts as a matter of law, yeah. Not a fair use. What this court can take into its consideration, there is no way we can find a fair use. And yeah. the only thing we can take into consideration is what we've been told in the court. This is getting a little bit into sort yeah. of the nuance They're of the basically saying the evidence, jury should have never gotten this case. Yeah. The judge should have ruled it as a matter of law based on the factual record once Google concluded its defense. Yep. Yeah.
Uh, so that's what happened. The case is now up on appeal to the Supreme Court, which has not yet agreed that it will accept the case. Uh, it's generally believed in the industry that they will. I don't 100% understand yeah, I why. I don't think this is necessarily certain. I think there's a there is a good reason that you can see them wanting to take this because this yeah. is a major issue and it involves a lot of things related to computer programming. I should say we're recording on May 1, 2019. So as of Monday, the... Um, the court had asked the government, asked, they ordered, uh, ordered the government to uh, the Solicitor General's <laughs> office to outline the government's position in this case. So the court has conferenced on this, have not yet made a decision, and presumably they're going to wait until they get the SG's uh, thoughts on this before they decide whether to take the case or not. But um, there's some concern in the open source community that if the decision stands, it's going to kill off open source software because what you often do in open source is just duplicate existing uh, APIs, uh, which you know has, has been done a lot. And, and the, the biggest example of that is probably the Linux operating system, which was basically copying the API of the Unix operating system, which is now owned by Microfocus. So there are people who are worried that Microfocus may start enforcing uh, this API against uh, Linux, which is everywhere. Yeah. I think that's actually a, a little bit of an overblown concern because, uh, you know, not to get too far into the weeds, but basically the interface itself, the API, is not actually owned by Microfocus, I don't think. I believe POSIX, uh, it's called POSIX is the name of the API. This was developed by uh, IEEE, an organization Kirk uh, knows well, <laughs> and an organization called the Open Group, which is devoted to developing open vendor-neutral standards for interoperability. Yep. Uh, and that's also what IEEE does, is develop standards for interoperability. And a lot of other what's called standard setting organizations, which are essentially organizations that develop specific standards. There are actually specific rules related to standard yep. settings organizations where people who participate in standard settings organizations, this can be something which is proprietary, but there's requirements if you bring something proprietary to a standard setting organization, which is then placed in the standard, there are literal requirements on how it can be enforced. The thing that's really interesting about standard setting organizations, just to know, there are attorneys who specialize in standard yep. setting organizations. It's a very specialized area of law and a very important area of law that's out there. It's called FRAN. Fr uh, FRAN, yeah. Well, it's not, it's not free, is it? It's uh, um, fair. fair. Fair, reasonable, reasonable and non-discriminatory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the terms have to be, you can't just pick and choose people yep. who get the stuff and who doesn't. You have to give it to everybody. Yep. And a lot of you these can charge things, for it, but it's got to yep, be We fair. encounter these things on a regular basis. Probably the most well-known standard setting organization, FRAN type thing, is Bluetooth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we all use that, but if you, you can actually go, you can get online. There are very specific requirements of here's how you use Bluetooth, here's how you can use it, here's how you can specify that you are using it, you know, sort of things like that. That's all set by a standard setting organization. Now, the interesting thing about it is we can look at the Free Software Foundation, GPL licensing. That is also a standard setting organization in many respects. That's Oracle what they've is. done. This, you know, what is the Java yeah. standard? What comports with and it and you know, what does not? Java is kind of one of those terms you can see thrown around. Have a license. Java license is a license mm -hmm. you used to see thrown around a lot. You don't see thrown around nearly as much anymore. But it, all of these things behind this is basically saying, and what standard setting organizations are trying to do is saying, we want to create something which is industry neutral. And effectively, it's usually a recognition, and usually the people who generate these, is there's five or six large players in an industry mm -hmm. who look at it and say, we can all develop our proprietary standards to do this, but the reality of it is, that will hurt all of us. Yeah. So we're going to all sit down, we're going to develop what we think is the best one 
regardless of who we are, and then we're all going to agree to use it. And this by is agreeing f- to use it, the Sony can talk to the Panasonic. Exactly. This is where the, I was going to say this is where the format wars come from, where you've got one person who's like, "No, our way is better," and they just yes. refuse to cooperate. Uh, and then it's a matter of who's going to win in the marketplace. Beyond that, yep. Um, yeah. So, so the POSIX standard is owned by IEEE jointly with the Open Group. Both are standard-setting organizations. Neither is going to go enforce the license at the expense of one vendor in favor of another. I just don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, so. unless they truly can say somebody is violating it as a standard. Yeah, in which case, that's what they're there for. We would want that, I yeah. think. So um, so that's uh, it's, we're an interesting case. We're going to keep our eye on it and see what happens with it. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of fear in the open source community. And we were kind of talking on the way over here, and this kind of leads into maybe our next episode. Um, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the pithy um, uh, summaries you see of these cases on your, your major tech journals are mostly not written by lawyers, mostly not not written by people who understand the cases. Even I read some AP summaries of what the holdings were, um, and those summaries are often uh, really overly broad. This is, you know, the case has not held so far, at least, that that every API is copyrightable. It's held that this API yeah. is copyrightable. Well, and it's not even that this API is copyrightable and what was done was an infringement yeah. and not fair use. It is entirely possible somebody else could do something very similar, but slightly different, and not infringe yep. the copyright. So, and I think that's why we really want to get into it, and we're, that's, that's sort of spin us around where we started in conjunction with this nuance. Yeah. And I think that's the big thing we really want to talk about in, in conjunction with this and it's a good place to potentially end our discussion of this case. This is a very nuanced case and it's something to keep in mind when you hear or you read something about this case which is saying it's going to have this impact in a broad area that may or may not be true. Yeah, we, the we issue is what yet. the holding is and what the nuance of those holdings are. A lot of court cases, there's definitely court cases that are out there which sort of acknowledge this is something which, you know, in this case is an infringement, is not an infringement, but effectively, and you'll hear the phrase used in law school, you can't even see a court use it, is limited to its facts. Yeah. And effectively what they're saying is in this particular unique fact situation, the law says this. We recognize that in every other fact situation, that may not be true. But in this fact situation, it is. Um, The example of one I love to pick on, and I'll actually just pick on it, is... um, a particular doctrine in conjunction with patents, um, which has to do with the the relationship between double patenting, between design patents and utility patents, which I'm not going to get into. But in the rules, it specifically states that there is such a prohibition and such a rejection can be made, but the rule itself recognizes while possible in theory in practicality, it could basically never occur. Mm-hmm. So it acknowledges that, yes, theoretically, this infringement does exist, but even the rule acknowledges they can't come up with a fact situation that would meet the requirement. Well, and I think I think what may be relevant here is that first point where I said uh, we don't really know which one's true and it's not relevant as far as who's at fault for the license negotiations yes. falling apart. Regardless of who's at fault, I wonder if the outcome here wasn't motivated by the fact that Google went to Sun, asked for a license, couldn't get terms, and basically said, well, we're just going to do it anyway then. Yeah. I mean, if I'm the court, I'm like, well, then you thought you needed a license, so how come all of a sudden now you're saying you didn't? Yeah, and that's th- th- there is some sort of uniqueness in it. And again, I think this is, again, we're talking about nuance, what are the particular facts in this situation. That is a fact, which you know shows up in conjunction with this, which may influence it, which is, if you thought you needed a license and now you say you don't, why did you think you needed it in the first place? Well, and there's you some 
some pretty damning internal correspondence I've seen bandied about on, online too. So Google yep. around for that. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but yeah, go, Google so Google around for for Google's <laughs> internal correspondence. That's like saying look for the leaks from WikiLeaks. I mean, come on. Well, it's not leaked. It's just part of the court case. But <laughs> yeah, I've seen people I mean. quoting. I haven't looked at the record of. So I don't know, you know, what the context of it is. But there's some statements that don't look good for Google. I'm sad to say. I'm I'm, a, I'm I, I make fun of them a lot on our podcast. But I, I use Google stuff. I love Google. But um, they uh, <laughs> they we did uh, call out San Francisco at the beginning of this. We better be careful about you know say picking on Google too much. Oh, we love Google. We love everybody. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, there's the music, and it's time to go. We have a lot more uh, topics to cover here, but uh, that being said, our next episode is uh, a little up in the air. We're thinking we might do a mailbag day, we might do like a movie TV recap episode. Uh, we've got Captain Marvel to talk about. I finally saw Infinity War yesterday, <laughs> uh, and then Game of Thrones is going on. Uh, episode three just uh, finished up. Uh, so we'll see. We're also talking on the way over about maybe doing sort of an episode focusing on the way that the law is used or portrayed in popular media. Um, I think we're definitely looking at the idea of this being something as a media episode and, and not sort of a, one of these... You know, this is a die-hard legal tech episode. Yeah, I think we're looking at that's going to be a little more lighthearted and sort of getting a little more into hey, let's look at sort of some law interacting with media, with general things, stuff like that, and maybe even a true media. Yeah, episode. we had a lot to cram into this one. We didn't get halfway through it. So <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, that's that's coming up. We haven't 100 decided yet, but we'll uh, we'll figure that out and we'll we'll tweet out what we're going to do. Uh, so you can check out our website, uh, www.lggpodcast.com. It has links to our various platforms where you can download prior episodes and get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and by email. Subscribe to this podcast on the platforms and give us a review. That helps us find new listeners like our new friends in San Francisco. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 